DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, an aircraft that was used as part of the death flights during the dictatorship of the 1970s and 80s has been returned to Argentina. Por un lado, revivir... For me, seeing this plane here, which as a machine doesn't bear any guilt, but also carried out such a terrible function, it was very shocking. We'll also hear how this airplane figures into remembrance in Argentina and even in neighbouring Chile. These objects or these, you know, the helicopter, the plane, they are in many ways just objects, you know, they were vehicles for repression, but they also lead us to think more broadly about how we want to remember the past, who we want to remember. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're looking at how Argentina and its neighbor Chile are coming to terms with their past, both marred by dictatorships in the 1970s and 80s. We begin in Argentina, where the return of an airplane from the time of the country's military regime has made headlines. The plane was the fifth and final known aircraft used to get rid of dissidents during what became known as the death flights. Its arrival coincides with the 40th anniversary of the end of the dictatorship and has stirred up many emotions about the past. Reinhard Baumgarten has this report. It's presented by Jennifer Collins. A quick warning before we get started, we'll be hearing accounts of state violence and terrorism that might be disturbing to some listeners. It's an unusually warm day in Buenos Aires. The sky is a bright blue. Today is the day that Mabel Cariaga has both much longed for and deeply feared. The reason for her mixed emotions stands in a hangar in a military airfield. Whoever looks at this thing should not see an airplane, but the story of a genocide. I can't look at it. All I see is the face of my mother and the other mothers. On December 14, 1977, Mabel's mother was hurled alive out of a short SC-7 Skyvan propeller plane in the skies over the La Plata River. Sometime later, her shattered body washed up on shore. Around 200 of these death flights, as they became known, took place between 1976 and 1983, during Argentina's military dictatorship. Around 30,000 people were murdered in that time. Many of the dead were never found, including Patricia Oviedo. Here's her brother, Carlos Oviedo. My sister was 24 years old. She was just about to finish her studies to become a doctor, and she was looking for her brother Pedro, who also went missing. Neither sibling was ever found, but Carlos Oviedo is sure that he knows how his sister Patricia died. The death flight took place on December 14th at 9.30pm. It was a Wednesday. My friends who were active in the radical scene told me my sister had been thrown from the plane. I kept it from my parents. They found out what happened from a report many years later. The aircraft used to kill so many was a turboprop transporter. The plane's ramp door can be opened during the flight. Surviving loved ones of the death flight victims tracked down the machines used at that time. 
they found out that three mothers of detainees who had demonstrated at the Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires had also been thrown alive out of the sky van on December 14, 1977. Two French nuns were hurled to their deaths on the same flight. Using archived mission orders and logbooks, private investigators eventually found the pilots. In 2007, they were brought to court. One died during the trial and the other was sentenced to life in prison. Miriam Levin was instrumental in tracking down the December 14th plane. The avión duró 20 días, hubo una escala forzada por desperfectos técnicos, hubo cambiar que cambiarle el motor en Kingston, Jamaica, pero hasta eso returning the plane, which was last used to deliver mail in Florida, wasn't easy. It took 20 days to get the plane to Buenos Aires. The engine on the 50-year-old machine had to be replaced in Kingston, Jamaica, en route. The two pilots, an Argentinian and an American, ended up landing using the GPS on their cell phones because the plane doesn't have proper instruments, radar or anti-icing equipment and can't fly at night. It made 10 stopovers. It was a tremendous aeronautical achievement. Overcome with emotion, Miriam cried as she saw the plane land and roll down the runway on the military airfield. For me, seeing this plane here, which as a machine doesn't bear any guilt, but also carried out such a terrible function, to see it here in the same place where they loaded the unconscious bodies of the disappeared to take them on their final flight. It was very shocking. Those condemned to die were probably unaware of the fate that awaited them. Arrests were often totally arbitrary. Anyone who opposed the military junta in word or deed was arrested, tortured or killed. The death flights were just one of the ways Argentina's brutal rulers eliminated those who opposed them. Pablo Vernas's father was tasked with tranquilizing the condemned prisoners before the flight. Vernas, along with other children who obediently aided the junta, wants to help find answers. Our act of disobedience now is speaking out and breaking the vow of silence those responsible have taken. There is still some time for families who have been affected to find peace. But time is running out, says Carlos Oviedo, who lost two siblings during the dictatorship. This is the horror of Argentina's military dictatorship. And unfortunately, we have politicians and representatives today who can deny all of that and still become president or vice president. That's the really terrible thing. The hope is that the return of the SC-7 Skyvan to Buenos Aires from Florida will help keep the memory of that terrible time alive. It will remain on display at the museum on the grounds of the former Naval Academy. Jennifer Collins with that report by Reinhard Baumgarten. The case of the death flights figures into a broader, very complex history of the brutalities suffered during Argentina's dictatorship. To get a little more context on how the return of this plane figures into public life in Argentina, I spoke with Professor Cara Levy a senior lecturer in Latin American studies at University College Cork in Ireland. She's written extensively on the politics of memory. Dr. Levy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. 
Well, it's been 40 years since the dictatorship came to an end. How would you describe where Argentina is in terms of dealing with its old past? Do people still want to talk about it? Are supporters of the old regime, for example, still vocal? I think we're at kind of an interesting moment because there are elections being held in Argentina this autumn and we've just had the kind of primary elections which have suggested that the kind of, I suppose, the closest equivalent would be kind of Trump, um, Javier Millet, who is kind of self-proclaimed libertarian, but also, you know, these kind of leaders that have very little interest in equality, human rights agenda. So some of those questions about how the past is going to be dealt with, etc., are still very present. But what we've seen in Argentina has really been an evolution over those 40 years. Certainly what we've seen really from the mid-1990s is a boom in public memory initiatives connected to the past and addressing the past that have gone hand in hand in many respects with the struggle for truth and the struggle for justice, which have often been kind of stymied by amnesty laws and legal impunity. So this shift that we've seen is kind of partly in response to the generational shift that from the mid-1990s, those who were babies and children during the dictatorship become adults themselves. They, you know, become kind of active. But it's also a response to the fact that the dictatorship issue sort of lost public presence during the early 90s. And now, you know, certainly from about the late 90s, we see the local governments getting involved, supporting initiatives, and then Post-2004, the federal government um, under first Nestor Kirchner and then Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, who have supported, funded, but also placed themselves in doing so in supporting and funding initiatives, also, also placed themselves on the side of the victims as well, which has been really kind of a key sort of watershed in the politics of memory in Argentina as well. Tell us a little bit about the victims of the regime. What main groups did the regime target? It really becomes quite a wide-ranging um, group of victims, and there is this sort of more randomness. Um, historians have argued in the case of Argentina that there was a sense with the regime there that anybody could be picked up off the streets, and some of those who were um, targeted were often not involved in um, politics at all. But we also see another kind of category of victim, which I would argue are those created by the dictatorship, and this is actually very closely connected to the death flights, um, which is, you know, as well as those who opposed the regime or kind of responded to the regime's brutality post-1976. So in the case of Argentina, I mean, the Madres de Plaza de Mayo, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, or the Abuelas, the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo, will be very well known, human rights groups. But what's important in kind of understanding their activism is that they respond specifically to the dictatorship era of violence, specifically to the disappearance of their sons, daughters, and as it became known later, grandchildren as well. So the mothers, um, abuelas, other family members, survivors, etc., became opponents of the regime, you know, through this, this struggle to find out the truth. And they were also targeted, as well as lawyers who had, um, you know, helped to try and find victims. So um, why this is quite interesting for the, the case of the death flights and the plane that's been returned to Argentina is the emblematic of um, the dictatorship's repression, but also the flight that has particularly been under scrutiny, which was one that left Buenos Aires on the 14th of, or around the middle of December 19, 1977, I think, had involved, had had three of the mothers, three of the madres on 
the flight as well as two French nuns and this was quite a famous case because obviously they were forcibly disappeared but the mothers had been mobilising, had been meeting, had been meeting to criticise the dictatorship but also to find their children and the, the two nuns had been involved in working kind of grassroots kind of charitable work with you know various kind of minorities but then had also you know fallen into kind of under suspicion from the perspective of the regime so we have these kind of victims that were you know more obvious political economic opposition and then the victims in a way that the regime created through its nefarious practices. So what role do you see this playing in the ongoing trials in Argentina or even just coming to terms with its past? Well, it's already, interestingly enough, had a role kind of in abstentia, possibly, in relation to the trials. So in 2011, the plane was found in Florida. I mean, it's taken, what, 12 years to return to Argentina, but it was already formed part of the case for the trial against the pilots in 2017. And this was particularly kind of interesting, I thought, because although the plane didn't constitute material evidence in itself it wasn't brought to Argentina in that moment which is is possibly quite surprising the flight log did show some suspicious activity so what it showed was that a flight had left the uh, airport in Buenos Aires the Jorge Newbury airport which is kind of a smaller domestic one and got on a three-hour kind of out and back journey but no stops on route you know coming back to the same place with only the pilots mentioned as passengers so this had aroused a certain amount of suspicion so they've already played a role in that kind of at least in terms of the the trials and and implication of the perpetrators so the plane I think as well as having already been used in the trials it becomes harder to deny what's happened when there is this kind of material evidence of the dictatorship and, and certainly the fact that you know a lot of the places that have been recovered as sites for memory in Argentina have been the clandestine detention centres as the kind of the last place that individuals were seen, and I think in a way that the flight kind of has this similar role. It was the last place in which the the, the victims of this kind of fateful December 1977 flight were seen. So there's also a sense about this is this is somewhere that belongs to the victims and their families that we should kind of used as a as a, a kind of place to commemorate and as to what's done with that i think that's where the discussions are going to start now but the first step has been bringing that back to argentina coming up in the second half of the show we're going to hear more of my interview with professor levy She'll tell us about the curious case of how one of Chile's suspected death flight aircrafts ended up in the UK in a laser tag park of all places. But first, some music. Stay tuned. listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. Before we hear more of my interview with Professor Cara Levy, we're going to hear a report from Chile. Like Argentina, Chile is marking an important anniversary this year. September 11th marks 50 years since the military coup that eventually brought Augusto Pinochet to power. 
But unlike in Argentina, Chile has been comparatively very slow to deal with its past. Reporter Paula Kasten has this report. It's presented by Inika Mules. Pepe Rovano is a filmmaker from the Chilean coastal town of Viña del Mar. But that is not his real name. He wanted to drop his father's last name, to distance himself from him as much as possible. I am the son of a criminal person responsible for the death of six militant members of the Communist Party. What torments me most is the question of what I inherited from him. The penchant for violence, the patriarchal tendency, the macho gene. These questions will haunt me for the rest of my life. Pepe is part of the organization Historias Desobedientes, Disobedient Stories. It is composed of children, grandchildren and other relatives of those who served during the military dictatorship. They demand a full investigation of the crimes committed by their fathers and grandfathers during the dictatorship. My father was sentenced to 16 years in prison and didn't serve a single day of it because he was pardoned in writing. And when he died, he was given an honorable funeral with the Chilean flag, with the flag of the institution. Pinochet's dictatorship began on September 11, 1973, making 2023 the 50th anniversary of the military coup. And the process of coming to terms with the crimes is still slow. Stories like the one Pepe told about his father abound. Pinochet had negotiated impunity for his supporters during the transition to democracy, and it still applies today. Historian Maria Antonieta Mendizabal of the University of Chile believes this sends a fatal signal. El mensaje es, eh, vamos a garantizar la if the message is, we guarantee impunity to all those who violated human rights. That's a terrible message. If there's no reappraisal, well, you just have to look at what happened in Brazil. Because there's no deep understanding of democracy as something important and something necessary. There are people who call for a military coup without knowing what a military coup means or what it's led to in our region. Thousands were tortured and murdered right up until the end of the Pinochet dictatorship in 1990. With the election of the young president, Gabriel Boric, at the end of 2021, many hoped for a new chapter in working through the country's troubled history. Alicia Lira Matus is one of them. She is the president of the Association of Relatives of the Politically Executed. Her husband and brother were murdered by the Pinochet government. We have confidence in this government, but don't trust it blindly. We told them that we worked for this government, that we elected this government, but that we remain critical. The disappointment is too deep. So far, no government has shown any real political will. Hundreds of victims of the military dictatorship are still considered missing, and the search has been slowed down by the military's unwillingness to cooperate. In September of last year, Chilean Justice Minister Marcela Rios announced a national plan to search for the missing. A lot of court cases have looked into individual cases, but they've never looked at connections between cases or cross-checked with the information that organizations have gathered. So we are confident that we are moving forward. 
de que vamos a poder avanzar. By pooling the information, the government could advance the search, even without the support of the military. It is high time for this, says historian Maria Antonieta Mendizabal. But more needs to be done. You need to understand that it's not enough just to know the truth. This truth must be translated into policies that take the debate into education, for example. Not just into schools, but into universities, to teachers, to our future lawyers. This, she believes, is the only way a society can prevent history from repeating itself. That report by Paula Kasten was presented by Ina Camules. Death flights were also emblematic of the brutality suffered under Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet. And strangely, one of the aircraft believed to have been used to this end was discovered in the United Kingdom. And even stranger, in a park where people can go to play laser tag. Here's what Professor Levy had to say about the ongoing case. What we know at the moment really is that the helicopter, this Puma helicopter, which we used in death flights in Chile from about 1973 onwards and responsible for the, you know, for the disappearance of a number of of victims of the Chilean dictatorship had ended up in Britain in 2003. And certainly it doesn't seem to have been any kind of secret. Um, You know, it hasn't at any point been kind of any disguise or covering up of the insignia or anything and a code sign on seems to be visible at least on the fuselage but this fuselage has been um, in a a kind of um, laser tag airsoft park in southern England for the last um, decade nearly with the owner knowing very little about it so what seems to have happened at least recently is that the calls to bring the plane back to Chile have come from family members um, of the disappeared in Chile. So how that connection has been, I wouldn't be completely surprised if it isn't a result of discussions in Argentina about the return of the of the plane there. But it's also been driven mainly by human rights activists in Chile and, and latterly there have been calls for a number of Chilean exiles in Britain to return the helicopter to Chile. So you said this was, strangely enough, in basically like a laser tag park, which just that detail just gets me every time I hear it. But how is it verified that this is actually something that was used by uh, Chile's military regime? As I understand it, using particularly the aircraft individual code and call sign, and certainly the records that have been um, gone through one of the kind of UK helicopter flight databases has been that we know that the plane made it to Britain in 2003. I mean, the timing is quite interesting because this was around the time that renewed investigation into the Pinochet era crimes were kind of underway. You know, we've had Pinochet's arrest in 1998 and then we've had the Chilean court say, yes, the amnesty law is there, but it doesn't stop um, investigation into particular crimes. So the timing is quite suspicious, but the, you know, the, the records show certainly that the plane ended up in Britain and that it was used a little bit in air shows and things like that. I mean, one of the things that I suppose makes the transnational dimensions of this case so kind of compelling is that we have very clear logs, you know, about where aircraft goes. There is obviously one of the areas in which there is global cooperation and transnational cooperation is in air transport and and air travel. So just as we saw in the case of the Argentine plane, where there were very detailed logs, which then became kind of damning 
of the regime. We know that the helicopter that belonged to the, you know, the Chilean armed forces ended up in Britain, was used in this way and has now ended up. In terms of the formal identification, I don't know. I would imagine that remains to be seen because from everything kind of I understand, the owner of the laser tag airsoft centre was shocked. Um, you know, he knew allegedly that it had always been, you know, it was a Chilean helicopter that it had been decommissioned and broken up for parts and what he had was the fuselage you know the other bits had been sold or whatever but it's interesting that he then kind of his view was I didn't know about this but now I don't feel very comfortable with it being the centerpiece of this because my understanding it's also been the center of the kind of quest that you're doing so you have to get to the helicopter and if you do that you win or you you know you unlock another level of achievement so there's an interview with him in the press a few days ago in the Chilean press saying you know, he was not sure how he'd feel about his son, for example, playing there now. And I think that's a really interesting example of how certain objects may be given new meanings when we learn more about them. But my my understanding would be there'd have to be some kind of formal identification. And then that process, which in Argentina has taken a decade to get the plane back to Argentina, that we'd see something similar happening here. And certainly it's going to involve pressuring I would have thought the British government or British MPs which I understand will be quite a complicated process anyway. Then when it comes to Chile working through what's happened there are ongoing trials there as well. Do you think this will also be a case of a piece of evidence that makes it even more difficult to deny what's happened in the past? I think so and I think I mean I think Chile's taken a different path to truth and justice compared to Argentina so well, there are various obstacles and have been various obstacles to Argentina. There are a couple of key differences which, which, which are worth highlighting. I mean, one of those is that the Argentine regime left power relatively quickly. Chile is very different in that the transition itself is a, what we would call a pacted transition. It's quite slow. Pinochet has a fair amount of time to negotiate his way out of power. But what's key in Chile is that the Pinochet era structures still remain and that has been a major obstacle to all sorts of change, to legal change, to political change. Um, so what we've seen in particular in, in Chile, although there have been, you know, tireless struggles by human rights survivors, activists to circumvent amnesty law, but also to push the agenda of memory, to recover sites of memory, create memorials, that these structures, the 1980 constitution, which is very much a Pinochet era constitution, remains in place. And the conversations at the moment have been about, you know, in um, the last couple of years, Chileans have approved the drafting of a new constitution. They've improved, approved a group of legislators to be involved in that drafting, but they've rejected the constitution it, itself, which is, you know, quite an inclusive, more progressive one. So these memory struggles are still very much part of the political landscape in Chile. And I think it's extremely unlikely that a plane could be returned to Chile without really kind of probably quite fraught discussion about what to do with it about what this means because these these objects or these you know the helicopter the plane they are you know in many ways just objects you know they were vehicles for repression but they also lead us to think more broadly about how we want to remember the past who we want to remember dr levy thanks for taking the time to talk with us thank you very much it's been a pleasure Professor Kara Levy is a senior lecturer in Latin American Studies at the University College in Cork, Ireland. 
Time for a quick message from DW. I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. I've lost 20K. I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might just continue. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy, hence why they like cannabis and crypto. Money, money, green, you know, like everybody likes money. In this investigative podcast series, we entered a world that we never expected to find. It bears all the trademarks, the Russian mafia. It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very best. Top fantasy. This is Cannabis Cowboys. A story about big dreams, juicy money, and never-ending hype. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and past episodes of World in Progress, you can go to our website at dw.com. You can also download this episode and previous episodes on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions, just send us an email at worldinprogress@dw.com. This week's show was produced by Vipka Tegtmaier and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Gerd Georgi. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany. 